Well, good morning. This morning we are in Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be reading 15 through 23, and if you would please stand. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, we have read the words of your heart. And today as we walk through this, we ask that you would uh, continue to shape us and mold us and draw us closer to yourself. But most of all, Lord, help us to be what you created us to be. And so we give you your hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. <clears throat> A crowded United Airlines flight was canceled. A single agent began rebooking a long line of angry, inconvenienced travelers. Suddenly, an angry passenger pushed his way to the desk. He slapped his ticket down on the counter and said, I have to be on this flight, and it has to be first class. The agent replied, I'm sorry, sir, I'll be happy to help you, but I've got to help these folks first, and I'm sure I'll be able to work something out. The impatient passenger was unimpressed. He shouted so that the passengers behind him could hear, do you have any idea who I am? Without hesitating, the gate agent smiled, grabbed her public address microphone and said, may I have your attention, please, as she began to talk with a voice bellowing through the terminal. We have a passenger here at the gate who does not know who he is. And if anyone can find his identity, please come to the gate. It is important to know who we are, amen? And that's most especially true for those of us who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, both as individuals and as a corporate church. In our text from last week, in the first 14 verses of uh, chapter 1, Paul told us in Christ we are chosen by God, by the will of God, to share in the spiritual blessings 
of all the heavenly places and that we are adopted by God and we've been redeemed and forgiven and we've given access to the revealed will of God and are the inheritance of God with the assurance of our salvation sealed and guaranteed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that one day we might be united together with all things in the earth, all things in heaven to the praise of the glory of God. That is who we are. Amen? We read such things, and for the most part, even though I read these words, most of this is more than we can wrap our heads around. We really don't totally, really understand that. But our minds should call us to ask the question, why would God do this for us? Well, Paul answered that last week in Ephesians 1.6 to the praise of his glorious grace, which again is kind of hard to wrap your head around. The answer to that should cause us to say, so God, you've done this for us. What do we need, what do we need to do now? And in our text, Paul will tell us. And we see that because the, the text starts with, for this reason. When Paul says, for this reason, he's referring back to everything he's said to up to this point, that we have been blessed and chosen and predestined and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and given an inheritance and sealed by the special possession of God, by the Spirit. And because of those things and because of God's grace for us, Paul then prays, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remember you in my prayers. So what we're reading here is that Paul has heard some good news about those in the Ephesian church. Clearly God is at work in the hearts of God's people, so he falls to his knees and he praises God. What is Paul going to pray for throughout our text? Well, in a general sense, he's praying for four things. He's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He's praying that they would come to know the hope to which God has called them and chosen them. He was also hoping that they would know that they are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and that they would know what the immeasurable greatness of the power of God that we have when we believe. Now, that's the general sense. The specific sense, Paul is praying that in Christ we may know and live out all the spiritual blessings that he's given us by the immeasurable greatness of his power in the risen Jesus Christ. William Randolph Hearst, the famous newspaper publisher in the United States, who became one of the wealthiest men of his time, was known to spend large amounts of his money collecting art treasures around the world. One day, while reading through some books on some famous paintings, he found a description of some incredibly beautiful and valuable paintings he decided he really wanted to buy. So he sent one of his art um, possession person who would always do his shopping for him, and he went around the world, and after a couple of months, he came back, and he had found those treasures. Those treasures were actually in William Hurst's, one of his warehouses where the key had been lost years ago. He had what he desperately wanted. 
Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus because he wants us to know that we have a treasure too. And that it's a treasure that we have, but we really don't know where it is. We really don't use it in the way it needs to be used. Paul wrote this letter because he wanted those people to know that in Christ we have something no one else does have. And because we are in Christ, the greatest treasure God has given us in Christ is the power of God himself. Power over sin, power over evil, power over life, power over death, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked, look at this word, in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. So Paul wrote this to the church because he wants us to know what kind of power we have. Now he's talking here about resurrection power. The truth is, none of us hardly, I don't think, will ever on earth feel this power. We, to presently say we have this power, it's kind of absurd because we're not really using it at all. We love the idea, but that kind of power is not part of our, our experience as human beings. Sermons on the power of the resurrection inspire us, but how much effect do they have on our regular everyday lives? That's why Paul is writing this. He knows that we have a treasure that we're not using, and it's right within us. He prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. So what we're reading here is we don't... We don't understand the power of Jesus' resurrection because we are spiritually blind to that power. We need our hearts, the eyes of our hearts to be opened. We are spiritually blind to the power of the risen Christ because we are not fully aware of the blinding, deadening power of sin in our lives. Sin isn't the enemy of our souls. And it's also a natural part of our spiritual DNA as human beings. And so our sin within us fights against God with every fiber of us being. And it will until the end of life for us on earth. Many of us are even spiritually blind to the battle that's around us too. Sin has either defeated our unction or we have decided and convinced ourselves that we can take the battle on by ourselves. We're also spiritually blind because we're not fully aware of the magnitude of the demonic power and evil that is continuously and constantly all around us. The devil is at work every moment of every day, brothers and sisters, keeping us from that kind of power. We read in in Peter that the evil one prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan knows he's lost the war. But he will continue, he will continue to battle us, poison our hearts and minds, fill our lives with anger and pride and bitterness until our last breath on earth. We're also blind because we have never fully, some of us, embraced the work of Jesus Christ. We've never fully considered until this moment that Jesus is reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords over the entire universe which means he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings over our lives too. And that our lives 
should reflect that. We should be living that out. And this is what the Apostle Paul was praying for, for the church, for the church in Ephesus and for the church in Port Alberni. Paul was praying for these people in the church because they were not living their lives by the power that was available to them in the resurrection. Paul prays this even as he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. So he, he saw some, some, uh, something that's going well, that they had faith and they had love for one another, but the problem was they weren't moving anyplace. Nothing was happening. They were enjoying themselves. We are not a people who are to be sitting. We're a people who are pilgrims, and we're always on the move. Paul prays that the Lord, excuse me, Paul prays that the Lord God, or Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He talks here about a spirit, and that spirit is the Holy Spirit. And the wisdom gained here is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. And what Paul is getting at here with this kind of power is the magnificent, deeply mysterious, glorious truths of God's Word are more than just mere sentences with words on a page. They are truths of God. This book we have is the truth of God. It's not just a book. The Bible isn't just a book that gives us good morals and ethical guidelines on what to do and how to behave. First and foremost, the Bible was written and designed to lead us into the presence of God, to know him, to receive his love in his wisdom and his strength and his will and his reign and his control over our lives and control over the whole world in the midst of being in the presence of the majestic, holy, glorious presence of God in the Word of God. And Paul doesn't take it for granted that this kind of relationship with the Bible is going to just happen on its own. That's, it's not automatic. The Word of God tells us that we are to read the Bible and study the Bible and listen to the Bible and memorize the Bible. And if you want it to come alive to you, you need to pray for the Holy Spirit and you need to do your work. If you just open your Bible and read and think you've got it, you're, be, you're being lazy. You've got to open your heart to God and work at it. So Paul is praying that God would continually give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God so we would see, so we could see God in the way we should see him. Paul is praying that God would enlighten our hearts so we would know something. Now, we've talked about this before. We think about know means know about. I know about this. But know in the Bible is like to, more than that. More than that, it's a, it's a kind of an intimate knowing. I would say it's kind of like the different kind of ways you can know an apple. Okay, you can know an apple is an apple because you can see it and look at it and hold it. But it's a very different knowing apple when you smell the apple and taste the apple and chew on the apple and eat the apple and swallow the apple. You have experienced that apple. And that's what know means. Know this. We, that we might know, Paul is keys to tell. That's the kind of know he wants. And he wants us to know three things. What is the hope that we've been called to? And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
Now Paul is not praying that we would discern the hope of God's call for us or, or see that God is our inheritance. He is telling us we have God's calling and we are God's inheritance. That's the way we know it. Paul is praying that God would enlighten us so we would not know about God, know about the word of God, but rather that we would be eating it and being part of us. When we truly know, not just know about, what the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us is, then we will fully experience that. And we will know the hope what's been called, we're called to, and know that we are the riches in God's inheritance. And that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are given to us through the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. The power of the risen Christ towards us is immeasurably great. In the last four verses of our text, the Apostle Paul writes the five different ways God demonstrates that those of us in Christ can know the immeasurable greatness of the power of the resurrected Christ. First, the power of the risen Christ is immeasurably great towards us because Jesus was raised from the dead and he broke the power of death. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead and he will never die again. Amen? And because it's so, when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we die and we were raised from the dead, we will never die either too. Amen? That was quiet. That should have been louder. Jesus' death on a cross paid the price for our sin and his resurrection defeated death's power over us. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power we have available to us at this very moment in Christ. This is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us. Secondly, the power of the risen Christ is immeasurably great towards us because God seated the risen Christ at his right hand. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus, excuse me, God sovereignly seated Jesus at the right hand of power in heaven. That's our power too. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The day we go to glory, we will be sitting right next to Jesus on the throne. Amen. There's a place in heaven waiting for us to sit right, sit right next to the one who was mocked and beaten and crucified and buried and raised by the power of God. The power that took Jesus from death to life and put him internally into the presence of God is the same power you and I have available to us every moment of our lives. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us.
Thirdly, the power of the risen Christ is immeasurably great towards us because God gave Jesus power over all the powers in the universe, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God is sovereign and providential over all things. He gave the risen Jesus Christ that same power. Now, I know we all know that Jesus is God and God is Jesus, but it's significant that God gave Jesus that kind of power after the resurrection. We have that power today. Ephesians six twelve tells us that we, okay, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There it is. The rule is, rulers and authorities here speaks also and include the devil and his demons. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he was given the power over the devil and demons, and they are defeated foes. But they are still at work in the world, battling against us, but in Christ, we have the power to defeat them. And in fact, they're already defeated. This is the immeasurable greatness of power toward us. Fourthly, the power of the risen Christ is immeasurably great towards us because God gave Jesus as head over all things in the church. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church. Now in this we read of two different authorities. First, God has put all things under Jesus. So Jesus has authority over all things, <coughs> over all history, all human beings, demonic powers, disease, coronavirus, virus, disabilities, hurricanes, tsunamis, lightning, tornadoes, volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, global warming, sports, salmon runs, the economy, Inventions, media, price of gas, internet, iPads, iPhones, iPads, wars, governments, presidents, kings, chiefs, tribes, city councils, mayors, religions, colleges, universities, solar systems, SARS, galaxies, molecules, atoms, protons, neutrons, and thousands and thousands and millions and billions of things I'm not going to talk about. Jesus is head over all. Amen. The second authority we read of is that God has given Jesus' head over the things to the church. Now that doesn't mean that the church has authority over all things. What it means is God has appointed Jesus Christ to be the chief authority over all things in the church. And Ephesians 5.23 tells us Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And this is always a good reminder to us who attend church in a culture which is constantly rebelling against authority. The one has who, who has authority over all things is our authority in this church too. And this should be deeply humbling for us. And we should remember this every time we're trying to choose to do anything, make sure we are under the authority of Jesus. By his grace, he chose us to be his instruments of grace also. This is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. 
And fifth and lastly, the power of the risen Christ is immeasurably great towards us because ultimately when the power of Christ is revealed, we will be his greatest glory. Let me say that again. The power of the risen Christ is immeasurably great towards us because ultimately when the power of Christ is revealed, we will be revealed as his greatest glory. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God's power towards us is ultimately intended to fill the universe with the authority of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And in the beginning, God created human beings to populate his created world, to subdue it, to enjoy it, in ways that would reflect his glory in all that we think, say, and do. But sin entered the world and entered our lives and thus began our downward slide into depravity, evil, and death. But Ephesians 2 tells us that, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see what's happening here? This is how the church is going to be the fullness of him who fills all in all. One day God will fill the universe with the glory of his crucified and risen son by making the church as a showcase for the glory of the sovereign grace of God. And Jesus will fill the universe the God of the glory of God by showing them us, how he chose us, how he predestined us, how he came for us, how he taught us, how he suffered for us, how he died for us, how he rose for us, how he now reigns with us, how he calls us, how he justifies us, how he cleanses us, how he glorifies us, how he satisfies us. This is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. Amen. Now, this power of God is lacking in the church quite often today. One of the uncommon responses we're hearing about this latest virus is there are some who are struggling with this illness who are thriving because they're putting their faith in God. But much too often we don't hear that kind of thing, in North America especially. One of the pervasive marks of our culture and our times is that we are very weak in our spiritual life. It's, it's in the air we breathe in the culture, and it infects all of us. We want everything to be quick, easy, and comfortable. We're easily hurt, we're quick to pout and mope. We whine and complain about our feelings. We become angry if we have to wait or if something costs too much or someone doesn't treat us very well. 
Claiming to be a Christian in, in, in these days doesn't seem to make any difference. We're, we're emotionally weak. It doesn't take much for us to break. We tend to bend God's word to fit our special preferences. We're easily di- disheartened when we face problems, struggles, and pain. Our sacrificial commitment to the church often uh, breaks easy too. Years from now, when historians list out the outstanding character traits of the church of our day, commitment, patience, perseverance, and resolve will be replaced with this all-consuming interest in our comfort and happiness. What a contrast from the people that came before us and the people we read of in the Bible. They knew that struggle was just a way of life. They knew they could not escape the pain or the struggle or the suffering or should they even try. They saw the difficulties of life as something to embrace as being a gift from God, providentially and sovereignly sent to them as a gape, as, as a is a gift to shape their souls. They knew that Christ, in Christ was not about prosperity or success or comfort, but rather about intimacy with God and maturity in our walk with God and a focus on influencing the world. And this is something all of us need to work on. But while we do live in a society that's emotional, weak, and we have been affected by that, we still need to remind, remind ourselves we have been chosen and we have been called to do something that's much more joyful and much deeper. Jesus said his power is given toward us who believe. We too often forget that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As we move ahead as a church in our mission, in our vision, in our transition in the days ahead, we must pursue the reality of the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work, the great work that he worked out in Christ. The power the apostle was speaking of is the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus from his death from a cross. That same power is for us. And this is a power that is available to us, but we we can keep saying that, and it's in the Bible, but what does that really mean for us? This is a bigger picture that usually isn't talked about. This power is much farther in depth and much farther in width than we are. Consider what Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 19 through 23, when he said this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Here it comes, the redemption of our bodies. 
So this isn't just about us. This is about all of creation. When Jesus is risen and we are risen, all of creation be, will be risen with us. Randy Elkhorn writes this, the, the power of Christ's resurrection is enough only to remake, is, is not enough only to remake us, but to remake every inch of the universe back to perfect. Mountains, rivers, plants, animals, stars, nebula, quasars, and galaxies. Christ's redemptive work extends the resurrection to the far reaches of the universe. This is a stunning affirmation of God's greatness. It should move our hearts to wonder and praise. Do you ever sense creation's restlessness? Do you ever hear groaning in the cold night wind? Do you feel the forest's loneliness and the ocean's agitation? Do you hear the, the groaning, the longing and the cries of whales? Do you see blood and pain in the eyes of wild animals or the mixture of pleasure and pain in the eyes of your pets? Despite vestiges of beauty and joy, something on earth is terribly wrong. Not only God's creatures, but even inanimate objects seem to feel things. But there's also hope visible in the springtime after a hard winter. As Martin Luther put it, our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in the springtime. The creation hopes for, even anticipates, resurrection. That's exactly what scripture tells us. The redemption of our bodies refers to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says that not only we, but the whole creation awaits the earthwide deliverance that will come with our bodily resurrection. Not only mankind in general, but believers in particular, those with God's spirit within, are aligned with the rest of creation, which intuitively reaches out to God for deliverance. We know what God intended for mankind in the earth, and therefore we have an object for our longing. We, grain f we groan for what creation groans, redemption, by the resurrected power of Jesus, crucified and risen. That is resurrection power. That's ours. Get your head around that. In his commentary on this verse, John Calvin wrote, I understand the pan passage to have this meaning, that there is no element and no part of the world which is being touched, as it were, with a sense of its present misery that does not intensely hope for a resurrection. In 2 Peter 3:13, the Apostle Peter writes, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In Revelation 21, Verse 1, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. Someday we will be resurrected from death into eternal life, just like our Lord Jesus, and all of creation will come with us and be new with us too. 
This, this is the immeasurable greatness of his power that is available to those of us who believe. On my May 18, 1980, there was an incredible explosion which was estimated at 500 times more powerful than the force of an atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. This explosion occurred, most of you know, in the state of Washington. And it was so powerful, it ripped 1,200 feet top off the top of the mountain, known as Mount St. Helens. Although the mountain volcano had been dormant for 123 years, within minutes, the incredible power blew the top off. Thousands of tons of volcanic ash were thrust into the atmosphere. It was said that the cloud of ash literally turned day into a night in the surrounding communities. Was that true? <laughs> Towns and cities were virtually immobilized by powdery ash that fell like snow. What was once considered prime hunting and fishing country was decimated. 26 lakes, 154 miles of trout streams, and 190 square miles of wildlife habitat were destroyed. But Mount St. Helens is not very powerful compared to the volcano which erupted in 1883. Mount Krakatoa in Indonesia erupted with a force that was equal to 30,000 atomic bombs, 60 times more powerful than Mount St. Helens. During the eruption, tidal waves killed over 36,000 people in Java and Sumatra and the cloud of ash cooled the Earth's climate for almost over two years. Brothers and sisters, what we have seen and know in the natural is a small example of the power of God. The truth is we as human beings haven't begun to comprehend the limitless greatness of the power of God. The resurrection power, though, is even greater. I don't know how many atomic bombs we're talking about there. The resurrection is an example of the sovereign power of God. It is like no other power. It is the glorious power of life over death. And those of us who are truly in Christ can come to know and live out all the spiritual blessings that God has given us by the immeasurable greatness of his power in the risen Christ. In Ephesians 3, 10 through, 12, 10 through 12, tells us why we can have that, child, that power. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That should stun our souls. That should break, take away our breath. I like best here at the end how Dr. John Piper describes this. Jesus Christ fills the universe with his glory by showing the universe his church, his body, how he chose her, how he destined her, how he came for her and taught her and suffered for her and died for her and rose for her and reigns for her, and how he called her and justified her and cleansed her and kept her and raised her and glorified her 
and be satisfied by her forever and ever. What this means to the people of God is we are to pray that we might know the fullness of God in our lives and that we might even, though we can't totally understand it, know that we do have a power to overcome everything. This is our identity in Christ. This is the identity we have as a church in Christ Jesus. We can powerfully and passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. Note, in Christ is there on purpose. Years ago when we put this together, in Christ. And so, amen? Amen. Father, we bless you for, for this text. This is, this is big, deep stuff, God. But we're, we're humbled by the fact that you, you love us, you, you died for us. Ultimately, Lord, you're going to uh, show us as your grandest and most glory. Don't really understand that, Lord, but someday all of us in this room who know you will experience this. In the meantime, help us, Lord. Help us, pray for us. Help us to, uh, to be the people you want us to be. And especially as we go through transition, Lord, I pray we would tap uh, even just a little bit of that power to help us to get through. So we give you our hearts and again give you all the glory and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.